0: Much like dragons, and they are dragons. If you if you you know if you extend the metaphor into thinking about um, the, the, these companies as being very old and very powerful and very influential in every way, but at the same time they're sitting on a hoard of jewels, and their jewels are really their expertise and their knowledge, much of which is in unstructured data, dispa- you know, dispersed over a whole host of Uh, spaces and data storage uh, facilities, as it were.
1: Hi there, and welcome to Macro, Micro, Michael, Marco and Startups at the Edge, otherwise known as M4Edge, the show about startups with technology that can change how the economy functions
2: technology that will change how the economy functions. (laughs) We're closing out our first season with three bonus episodes. In each of these bonus episodes, we check in with our first three guests on the show. Greg Mulholland of Citrine Informatics, Dipan Das of Sorcero, and Randy Altshuler of Zometry.
1: These three really perfectly capture much of how tech is changing the economy. In this episode, we check in with Sorcero, Which is changing how knowledge capital is used in an organization and what the knowledge economy really means.
2: Sorcero is still small. It has just 14 employees, but that arguably represents the strongest growth of our initial three guests because when we first spoke with Dipanvita, they were at about three or four people and still with one foot in the friends and family funding. They now have funding from a few VCs and are part of the Plug and Play Accelerator program, the same group that helped launch PayPal and Robbox. We picked three winners to start the show.
1: That's just how good we are. Too bad we don't invest. (laughs) Our first chat with (laughs) DiPameta was packed with allusions to science fiction. In this episode too, we talk a good deal about dragons, but here she notes that many companies are dragons. They're big and old and sitting on piles of trapped jewels, but these jewels are data and knowledge bits.
2: Dipanvita talks about Sorcero's own maturation and focus as a platform for natural language processing, NLP, for specific enterprises. And she talks about the extent to which human experts are replaceable by AI, a topic where my calls and my opinions are beginning to converge, something I should probably worry about.
1: <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> Enjoy the episode, and thanks for being curious. <laughs> So Dipanmita Das of Sorcero, welcome back to M4Edge. We're glad to be able to catch you.
0: Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be back. It's been a very exciting year and I'm glad to also be able to catch up with you both. In
1: and, and thinking about our first conversation, I think it still ranks as definitely one of the most fun, if not... the if not the most fun. And I know Marco particularly appreciated it because it remains our most heavily sci-fi <laughs> influenced right. conversation yeah. yet.
0: So. <laughs> You'll be happy to know that the company continues on its sci-fi fantasy uh, trajectory with this whole new dragon based naming convention that we now have for our platform.
2: Oh, I expected nothing less, but tell us more. Tell us more about this dragon naming convention. <laughs>
0: Sure. So in no particular order, you know, when we first spoke, we were just building out our beta um, and that beta product went to market in the fall of last year. Um, and, you know, we gathered feedback, did our pilot, did our own analysis of the market itself. And we have, as it were, the, the second generation or the first generation, actually, of our own platform built round up that went live on Halloween. Um so with that we needed to we needed to come up with better names than Gen One A and Gen Two A. Um, so we decided to go with dragons. So as you know, dragons are of are, are of various levels, starting with brass and, and I as I understand going all the way up to mithril. Um and you know this has all been drawn from dungeons and dragons um and other other cases where dragons make an appearance and then each dragon has each kind of dragon has a personality for example brass is known to be incredibly inquisitive and is known to sometimes pin people down and ask them for information because uh brass dragons like to accumulate knowledge um And, you know, uh, we are still, given where we are in our life cycle as a company, user feedback and learning from and about users remains critical. So we're starting off with brass dragons. There's a total of seven dragons um, and six sort of stages in the life cycle of each dragon, um, starting with, with, as it were, D1 um, and going all the way up to what will be D42. So we've We've shown Which our respect powerful. to Adams and we've
2: yes. shown our,
0: yeah, because by then we should have the answer to life, the universe and everything. So uh, there's 42 <laughs> stages of this. Um, so so that's our dragon naming convention. And the team's really excited to sort of finally um, be able to get out of beta and start doing more interesting and fun things with the platform itself.
1: I love it. And I, I, I promised me one of the dragons will be named Puff just because.
0: Why not? Apparently, they're supposed to have a name with each like an added word per life cycle. Um, I have not been as involved in the naming process, but all suggestions are appreciated. Okay,
1: (laughs) awesome. So our listeners may be able to detect that you're calling from your cell phone and that's because you're in a car on a a trip and you, you were telling us you've been pretty busy traveling. So tell us a little bit about what you've what you've been up to. Why why are you traveling and,
0: and um <laughs> I I have the question myself, why am I traveling? Why am I not? I don't know, something more magical than that. But uh so there are two things. One is that, you know, I more officially took over revenue and I was always sort of closing deals but I wasn't maybe picking them up from scratch as much. And I more officially took over revenue um, earlier this year. So, uh, you know, through that and through our, uh, through us becoming a plug and play portfolio company, we have been delighted to be inundated in deal flow from all sorts of corporations that are coming to us uh, through plug and play and otherwise. Um, And as these things happen, um, I sort of travel around to go and meet Uh, the teams on our customer side and and many of these meetings need to happen in person. So particularly with Plug and Play, uh, since they host a lot of innovation teams of different corporations that we are interested to partner with, um, we often have to go to Sunnyvale to their offices to meet with these teams. So that's been one side of it. Um, And then the other side is, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we opened our first price round, which we're very excited about. Um, And as you know, meeting investors face to face is always much more effective. Um, So I've been on the road also meeting with funds on both coasts and Boston.
1: So you said you took on revenue and I I noticed from your your website that there have been Quite a number of um, of HR changes when we when we met. You were, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, three or four people. Um, you you had at that point a chief AI officer. I don't know if you have one that's not on the website, but it looks like you, you don't have one now. So tell us a little bit about uh, the those. HR changes?
0: So one is, of course, as a team, we're expanding. So, you know, we are, as of this morning, 14 people, which is staggering and terrifying and amazingly exciting. So it's been great to sort of see the team expanding. Number two is, you know, as we grow as a company, we have much more clarity on the skill sets and the personalities of the people that we need on staff. Um, And... We currently do not have, or we we do not have uh, a chief AI officer because, as you know, um, Ken was Ken, Ken's uh, Ken's tech sort of powered our beta, but uh, we we all mutually agreed that the platform needed to be well architected from scratch in um, modular microservices way from from day one. Um, and that meant that we had to retire much of the work that Ken had brought in. Um, so we agreed mutually that it would be best if we started with a fresh set of skills mm-hmm. using some of the still some of the hybrid uh, AI uh, approaches that Ken taught us, but but certainly building everything from scratch based on, um, much more advanced production level, open source code code and, um, and you know, a, a team of dedicated NLP engineers. And we now have uh, two full-time and, and adding more to that pool over the next several months. So that's one big change. The other one is we now have a chief product officer. Um, that's a significant step forward uh, in many, many ways. You know, product is obviously is, we are a product-first company, but I had been managing product, and it was getting to a point where me meddling in GitHub did no longer made sense. Uh, so we brought on Amy um, Gallagher, who we're delighted to have, who we met through our investors, Neely and Javier, and uh, and she's you know she's very experienced. She managed PriceLine. Uh, global product rollout. She managed the Army Corps of Engineers project management platform rollout globally. So she's very, very experienced. So she joined us in August as our chief product officer um, and is slowly but surely taking over product from me. And uh, what's been really important about that also is to have somebody. Setting up the discipline around product releases and QA, and and managing that entire process, and building a stellar group of UI/UX and customer experience folks um, under her. So those are some of the more important, I want to say, critical HR changes and team expansion.
2: These are pretty exciting, department and uh, they're very clear, uh, very clear signs of. Uh, the growth and maturity of the company, how are they reflected in what you are offering to their clients?
0: So I think two things I want to say in the maturity of the company. As you know, when we first spoke, we had made a bunch of assumptions and we were still exploring the market and doing these hour long customer interviews. And we ended up in the course of last year alone over a period of maybe four or five months talking to over 300 corporations across a bunch of different industries, a bunch of different protocols. Um, And what those conversations really told us was it gave us our go-to market which is absolutely critical, but it also informed us about exactly which use cases, exactly who at these corporations really sort of had their hair on fire, and and, and who in in augmenting those workflows were the ones that would be really critical uh, for these customers to benefit from our solution. So we spend that time discovering it and we took that discovery process very seriously and that got us to sort of two conclusions one was that our domain was the de- domain of the technical enterprise so life sciences insurance construction supply chain um you know these are the industries where rules and regulations and technical information is paramount um and And so that was sort of the first thing that we, so we decided first and foremost, that as a company, Sorcero serves other technical enterprises. And second was we don't just serve everyone at a technical enterprise. We serve the subject matter experts at a technical enterprise because it's really their work and their expertise that drives business value for these companies. So those were the two things that we've discovered. So we, we more formally went to market with life sciences and medical affairs or field medical excellence as our, as our target. So you'll see that come up in a big way in, in where we are today. The second is, particularly with our partnership with Plug and Play, we found that we had a lot of inbound demand from insurance companies. Um, and and as, a, as a small company, you know, it, doing two use cases, two verticals is, is pretty hefty. It's a pretty heavy lift. So what we decided was that we were going to let insurance be purely inbound. Um, particularly through plug-and-play, but, but inbound nonetheless. Um, and that's sort of become our second vertical or second pool of use cases. And then the third point of maturity that I want to say uh, covers all of this is really making the transition or the decision that we are going to be a natural language processing platform, not a single product. Um, and everything that we build from the AI engine itself to the user flows, all of it, the workflows themselves, all of it is going to be configurable, um, very much the Lego block philosophy. So there's been a lot of evolution and maturity, both in the product and the platform, as well as in how we approach the market.
1: When you say you're an NLP platform, as opposed to a s- single product, t- tell me more about what that. Means, how does that reflect in the offerings and in how you interact with clients, and you know what what the thing is?
0: Absolutely. Um, so, um, our our sort of discovery process, of course, talked talked taught us about which markets. But the things that are really important about those markets or those use cases are twofold. One is much like dragons, and they are dragons. If you if you you know if you extend the metaphor into thinking about. Um, the, the, these companies as being very old and very powerful and very influential in every way, but at the same time they're sitting on a hoard of jewels, and their jewels are really their expertise and their knowledge, much of which is in unstructured data, dispa- you know, dispersed over a whole host of uh, spaces and data storage uh, facilities, as it were. And these companies are struggling to, as it to unlock the value in these jewels, make it more explainable, more accessible, more distributable. So as markets are changing and their own customers and their own stakeholders are expecting a purely uh, digital experience of fluid access to information at the right time, at the right place, personalized to their needs. For technical enterprises, this presents a unique problem. One is not just the access to the data itself, but also the governing workflows, because oftentimes, even if databases exist, the way that those databases are being accessed and then... Um, that information used in work is heavily manual, very tedious, really unscalable. And there's a lot of embedded errors in that. So with that, the reason Sorcero is an NLP platform is the only way to unlock that those jewels for them would be to first build a, a natural language processing specific platform because unlike machine learning in natural language processing you do need to be domain specific so you do need to um sort of become an expert in a domain to really understand it and by you i mean the ai in this case um and number two is because all of this work is an unstructured text, again, natural language processing becomes re- becomes really critical. And then if you think of the last point, in order to really complete digital transformation to be, for these companies and these use cases, you need to both make the information more accessible and usable, and you need to give them a workflow when there was none. Um, so it has to be a dual, you know, sort of like, a solution in two halves, and the only way you can do that is to have a platform, because then you have a set of tools and utilities, a set of white labelable workflows, um, a set of things that can be configured differently for different uh, customers and use cases without each new customer being a build from scratch. I'm am also practicing, so as you you'll see that I'm <laughs> I'm trying to make sure that everything I say is is comprehensible by folks outside of life sciences, <laughs> outside of insurance, it is a problem I face, where you're like, wait, wait, so what is that use case again? <laughs>
2: no, no, yeah, you sound very clear, fluent, uh, and persuasive.
0: Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that.
2: <laughs> I want to sort of
1: continue down this path a little bit, that um, and I'm interested in the the differences between these two verticals that you mentioned, life sciences and insurances. How, how have you found um, both culturally? Are there are the client teams or customer teams um, different? Are they do they approach the problems differently? Um, how how are you? Where are you at um, within the organizations? Are you sort of coming in at the same level? T- tell talk a little bit about the differences in those two sectors.
0: Yeah. So the the differences between the verticals. Um, as well as the similarities. Um, I think that the first difference that, that comes, that we have learned and that we've been surprised to learn, actually, is, is what, how are they measuring return on investment? And I think the ROI model is very interesting and different for these verticals. And sometimes the ROI model or the ROI model just backs straight into revenue numbers, and sometimes it doesn't. But because we work with the company's internal information to really support their internal goals, uh, we're finding that the ROI models are very interesting and very nuanced. At the same time, there's, there's a lot of similarity in the data types themselves or the data philosophy between these industries and in the, the way they do business themselves. So across life sciences and insurance, and I'm not going to take any names of customers because I do not have permission, but... Sure. Uh, we found that the data type for a pharma company is quite similar to a data type from an insurance company. And that means that on our end, we are templatizing a lot of that ingestion and making it truly unsupervised. And as we continue down that path, we are finding the ability to build scalable, repeatable systems, even at the ingestion level um, across industries, which I think is very powerful and very interesting. Um, the other similarity is the similarity of the pain point itself. So, uh, and and in realizing that a lot of soft value props are becoming hard value props, and I'll give you an example. So, you know, something like knowledge capture, knowledge transfer, knowledge management has been a, a soft to medium value prop for a software company to offer an enterprise. But what's happening is these enterprises themselves are taking the effort to build an ROI model that is wrapped around their ability to take their expertise and make it into a transferable business asset. Um, And as that happens and as these markets change, which they are rapidly and have been, I want to say, more rapidly than ever before in the last three to five years, um, it's becoming easier for us to provide them solutions that back into their own ROI models. And we're finding that in insurance, particularly, they're being very explicit about exactly what their problem is, but also how they're going to uh, calculate success which which is great for a startup because then you don't have to figure out how you're going to sell your solution to
2: them. So that, that is very interesting because it's really the customers taking the initiative, you know, proactively figuring out, okay, how do we calculate the actual financial impact on our bottom line from these innovations? Yeah. So that's it. That is, uh, it's actually very, very, very interesting. And as you have these discussions, the other thing I was curious about, Dipamita is uh As the customers are now switching from the soft ROI to the hard ROI, so now they're not only convinced that there is value, they can measure the value. How are they looking forward in terms of uh, asking you for something more in terms of looking forward and saying, this is what you will, we would like you to develop in the future to improve the functionality.
0: The first thing they do is adjacent use cases. So, you know, a lot of these business units are, I would call them composite business units. So yes, there are different job roles, but these job roles are quite intertwined with other job roles and other teams. Um, and. What's happening is, and, and I can I can talk to you a little more about pharma only because you know that's been our go-to market, so we've dug in much deeper ourselves. So let me use that as a as a uh, example. So we're finding that over the last three years, most of the top pharma companies now have an innovation team, and that innovation team, new as they may be, are gathering continuously requirements from various other business units. So um, and, and business units are more be, becoming aware that there is this innovation team which is tasked with bringing in new technology. Um, so, when we sometimes, so when we market ourselves and we sell ourselves, we start with a business unit. And when we do that, we are selling into a very specific use case with its associated value prop and ROI model and so on and so forth. But often these business teams, because if they find the technology interesting and compelling, they will take it back to their innovation team and say, hey, we talked to this startup. You're doing something that I think multiple teams will be interested in because of the configurability of both the technology itself, but also the associated user experience and other such things. Um, And because we... By virtue of how we work, we end up constructing an almost customer-specific NLP stack. They are very motivated because they're like, well, it works for one. It should work for another. Can you can you sort of reconfigure this to fit this other workflow? So that is already happening, and that's one of the ways. The other one is from the innovation team and then back to the business unit, where the innovation team will do a first check. And if they like what they see, they're going to then send us across to two to three to five teams. And then our pilots will be with between one and three teams um, from the get-go. So we, are already, we already have some direction on where the how and where the land and expand will move. And, and, just, to, um, and just to sort of repeat one more thing, Marco, particularly because you, know, you write so much about labor. And we've had this discussion about replacement quite a bit. What we've done is we've chosen expert workflows where the experts are irreplaceable because these people are sort of incredibly senior subject matter experts. They're doctors, they're PharmDs, they're MDs. They cannot inherently be replaced by a machine, but they can be scaled using uh, machine technology.
1: What, what do you mean scaled in this sense? Can't be so replaced, let's say I, be am,
0: I am... I'm, yeah, let's say I'm a subject matter expert at life sciences company. I'm a, let's say I'm a medical science knee right? And as a medical science knee today, I'm talking, I'm able to connect with 10 key, key opinion leaders per day. If I had my information systems better organized in a single elegant scalable workflow, I may be able to talk to 20 and that then backs into the bottom line. And that's what I mean by scalability. Uh, because they, this is this is not a question of ever replacing them, but making them more efficient, being able to talk to more people, do more digital stuff, and right. so on and so forth.
2: You, right. you do realize that Michael, of course, will see this as a replacement in any case, because Michael's argument, for which this time I would have some sympathy, is that uh, <laughs> you're increasing the productivity, which means that work that could have been done yeah. by two subject matter experts can instead of be done by one. I, I
1: love it when people make my arguments for me. I mean, it's <laughs> just beautiful.
0: Yeah, right? <laughs> and, and, and you make a good point, Michael. And what we're finding is that there is a limit to how many people are being hired for these roles in the first place. So even the bigger pharma companies have a few hundred MSLs to begin with because Sorcero's solution helps them Make a case for their own jobs and to say that look, we are adding a lot of value because we're bringing you insights from the field. We're directly contributing to increase revenue. It actually disincentivizes their employers from shrinking the size of the team. For for at least some of the workflows, that will be correct because of who we are serving, because there are you know these are people that are incredibly highly paid and very very sophisticated. So they're they're not just and their relationships do come with revenue implications. So they're
1: getting, you even a junior. You got, you got cut off a little oh, bit sorry. that last sentence you said. So, there. Yeah, so
0: I was just saying that uh, because of how much of an expert they are and how well trained they are, but also how incredibly highly paid they are, uh, they're not replaceable by a machine at all. But. And for insurance, this was the use case they came to us with, is that if you replace someone senior with someone junior, there is a measurable difference in the revenue. Right. So it is very much the business of experts. Um, and again, this was we obviously chose this because this is where we see the most value creation for an enterprise is in augmenting their existing expertise. Not just sort of optimizing by kicking people out.
1: So I feel like we should, uh, we should wrap up at, at this point. And if you remember our, our uh, signal uh, closing question has been, um, you know, how do you see the next 20 years evolving? But for this conversation, I'm going to ask a slightly different version of it, which is, does your view has your view of AI in the workplace and its future evolved over the last year? How do you see it differently?
0: Um yeah absolutely absolutely evolved. I see it differently in a couple of ways. I think of course it starts by differentiating between the work that you do with language versus the work that you do in numbers and you know predictive analytics and predictives will always remain a very very important part of how AI transforms the workplace but without finding a way to better use and understand and manipulate the, the data and the information in unstructured technical text, that transformation will never be complete. So I think the understanding that explicitly has been really important. Um, I think the other thing that has been, become very apparent to me is that you cannot bring in new solutions that uh, the vastest majority of an enterprise does not touch. So if you really, really want to scale your solution across the enterprise, it needs to be brought down to the level of everybody. And so making sure that transparency, ease of use, intuitiveness is maintained even in an AI-powered application is, particularly, I want to say, in an AI-powered application has become even more explicit. Um, And last but not the least is, I want to say that I'm really impressed with the pool of customers and companies we have talked to. Um, They they have been very thoughtful. It's very clear that a lot of time is being spent thinking about this in very real constructive ways. And when we talk to business units and enterprises, we are not having to explain ourselves in the way that I thought we would. And that's been absolutely brilliant.
1: All right. Well, it's been great catching up with you. Sounds like you guys are really moving on, on uh, a bunch of different and exciting tracks. So congratulations and, and good luck as you continue to grow. And uh, good luck with the rest of your, your travels.
2: And good luck with the dragons.
0: Thank you. Michael.
1: And with the dragons. Thank you, Michael. Don't Thank get you, Marco.
0: <laughs> with the dragons.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks. Take care, bye, bye.
0: Take care. Bye.
1: Thanks to the folks over at PodBlade for editing this episode. PodBlade is an affordable podcast editing service focused on making podcasting more accessible by offering all-in-one podcast editing, starting at just $20 per episode. We learned the hard way that audio editing is one of the most time-consuming parts of the podcasting process. That's why we're now using PodBlade to edit our shows. Check them out at PodBlade.com. That's PodBlade.com and tell them M4Edge sent you.